I invite you to stand and turn in your Bibles, not to Ephesians, but to 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 13. 1 Peter 1, verses um, 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let us pray. Our great God and our loving Father, Lord, we ask for your grace this evening. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless he who speaks and those who hear. We need your grace this evening, O Lord, to not only hear your word, but especially to obey it. And so we ask for your grace and your favor and your kindness to be upon us. Help us, O Lord, to hear and also to do. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In 1786, Abigail Adams received a letter from her sister about her oldest son, John Quincy Adams. And in the letter, uh, it was said that John Quincy Adams, he was very social and agreeable in company, but he could also be a little too uh, decisive and tenacious in private conversation. And so Abigail Adams does what a loving mother does, and she writes to young John Quincy, encouraging him to be watchful over himself, lest his knowledge make him arrogant. And in that letter, she said, if you are conscious to yourself that you possess more knowledge upon some subjects than others of your standing, reflect that you have had greater opportunities of seeing the world and obtaining a knowledge of mankind than any of your contemporaries. You have never wanted a book, but it has always been supplied to you. That your whole time has been spent in the company of men of literature and science. How unpardonable unpardonable would it have been in you to have been a blockhead, as only a mother can say. (laughs) The young John Quincy Adams made the same mistake that many young scholars make in their career, Uh, using their their knowledge to consider themselves more superior than their peers or their parents or even at times their professor. But fortunately for him and for us, he had a wise and gracious mother that reminded him uh, that he's not inherently superior to anyone else. But actually, it would have been quite a shame and quite a waste had he not obtained a certain level of knowledge considering all the great opportunity that he had. And so thinking of our text this evening in 1 Peter, Peter is going this evening to encourage us to be holy, to do good deeds, but not because of any superiority in ourselves, but because of the great benefit we have in the gospel. And just as a reminder, Peter's already spent the first 12 verses assuring us over and over again of the benefit we have in the gospel. And we considered in last week's message that the gospel is not merely boiled down to Jesus died for me so that I could go to heaven. That's, that's true, but it, that's not all of it. 
But we spoke of last week that through our union with Christ, we receive all of his benefits. And this is why Peter, in in this chapter, does not merely speak about regeneration, about merely being born again, but he also speaks of our election, our calling, our regeneration, our sanctification, and even our glorification. And since we have all these benefits in Christ Jesus, we shouldn't become decisive and tenacious in our theology, like John Quincy did in his studies, but we should also love and obey God. We should not be theological blockheads, but we should be holy. And so in today's passage, Peter reminds us first of the great benefit that we have in Christ, but he also encourages us to do something with it. He calls us to be holy. And if you've been in church for almost any amount of time, you, have may, you may have heard a pastor or, or a teacher talk about the difference between an indicative and an imperative. Um, and we find this all throughout, throughout the Bible. And it's really just a fancy way to say that every command the Bible gives us first rests on who we are in our relationship with God. Or another way to say this is that God never gives us a command without first giving us the gospel. And so this brings us to our first point, a future hope. Peter says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we've all heard the phrase, what's the therefore, therefore? So many times that it's a little mind-numbing, it's, it's a little cliche, but, but the truth of that phrase is always, always applicable. The word therefore here in verse 13 is connecting the commands of verses 13 and following to the gospel promises that we've been going over in verses 1 to 12. And so it's important to note that the commands toward obedience and holiness that Peter has for us this evening, they come after the therefore. They come after the gospel promises and not before. And so, again, if we were to say, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay, the phrase itself might be overused and might be cliche, but it's hugely important. It's a hugely important tool when we're reading the Bible, or, or any other book for, for that matter, there's an astronomical, there's a huge difference between Peter writing, you are saved, therefore you ought to obey, like he does here, versus saying, since you have, be- since you have obeyed, therefore you are saved. Huge difference. Astronomical. So we must remember that Peter's encouragement for our obedience and our holiness, again, comes after we've received salvation, after we've received this good news, and not before. And so even here in verse 13, Peter again reminds us of the gospel before he encourages us to obey. And so if we look at the command in verse 13, he says, it is to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. When Peter speaks of all the benefits that we have in Christ, he does not merely speak about the benefits we receive in this life, but he also speaks of the benefits we receive in the life to come. And so Peter first encourages us to set our minds on the gifts 
and graces that are still to come. And in, in theological language, we call the gift and graces that are still to come glorification. And so Peter speaks of this grace earlier, this grace of glorification in verse 4, when he says, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. And then in verse 5, he says, it is being guarded by God's power until the last time. And so for those of us who trust in Christ, we have innumerable benefits in this life, right here, right now. But we're also looking forward to our future inheritance. But we may ask, though, what exactly is this future grace or this future inheritance? What do we mean when we speak of glorification? And I think when we talk about glorification, we're primarily, this may not be all of it, but we're primarily talking about two things. And the first is the coming glory and resurrection of Christ at the end of time. And the second thing is the renewal of creation at the end of time. And so first, let's, let's look forward to the day of Christ's return, the day of Christ's final resurrection. It's in that final day that we'll have redemption, not only from sin, but from all its consequences as well. <clears throat> We've spent a, a few weeks already working through 1 Peter, considering the fact that his audience are elect exiles. They are, are sojourners, and these sojourners have received redemption, but they're still experiencing suffering. And in fact, many of these sojourners are experiencing suffering because they've trusted in Christ, because they've committed their life to Christ. And so Peter is telling us that, yeah, we have redemption even now through Christ, but we have a hope in a day where there will be no more suffering. And that day we will receive our resurrection bodies and experience sin and its consequences no longer. There will be no more pain, no more hurt, or no sickness and that day there will be no more Tylenol. There will be no more chemo. There will be no more struggling marriages. There will be no more depression. And we will no longer be exiles, but we will be at home with our Lord Jesus. And that day, our Lord Jesus will, as John says in the book of Revelation, our Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so we look forward to that day when Christ returns, but we also, secondly, look forward to the renewal of creation. We look forward to that time when not only will we, those who trust in Christ, be delivered from sin and its consequences, but even creation itself will be redeemed. And so we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where there will be, as John Murray says, no more curse, but righteousness will have complete possession, and undisturbed habitation. Even the creation itself will be freed from these consequences. Again, the Apostle John says in Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And so when Peter tells us in verse 13, when he says, preparing your mind for actions be sober-minded, this is what he has in mind. This future glory, this coming of Christ at the end of time. He does not tell us to prepare your mind for action, 
by trying to decipher the time when Jesus will return, right? He doesn't say, try to figure out who exactly the Antichrist will be and when he'll come back. He doesn't tell you to try and discern what the stock market will do, but he tells us to set our minds on the grace that is to come. And he tells us also to be sober-minded. And when he says this, he doesn't mean merely that we ought to abstain from alcohol, but we ought to think clearly. Again, we, not clearly about the news or the stock market or COVID or global warming, but we are to think clearly about the grace that is to be ours. So Peter tells us to think on this grace because he knows that our, our, our thoughts are often consumed by the cares of this world. This past week, this coming week, our, our minds will, will be tempted to think about books that need to be read. That's going to be my temptation. About papers that need to be written, home projects that need to be finished, relationships that need mending, children that need correction, or political decisions that need to be averted. But Peter tells us our mind should be on the grace of Jesus Christ. And when we think on this glory, when our hope is set fully on it, we will be comforted in all of our trials. Calvin says, when therefore, with our eyes fixed, fast fixed on Christ, we wait upon heaven, and nothing on earth hinders us from bearing us to the promised blessedness. The statement is truly fulfilled that where our treasure is, our heart is. And so Peter is telling us not to be consumed with the things of this world, but to set our minds fully on the grace that is to come. Not the cares of this world, not the papers that need to be turned in, the laundry that needs to be folded, the news that is happening in our world. But he tells us and reminds us that our inheritance that we have in Christ, he points us to this before he calls us to holiness. And this brings us to our our, our second point, that we are called to be holy. He says in verse 14, he says, As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so after having spent 13 verses of giving us reminders of the gospel, Peter now calls us to be holy. And it's important to note, yet again, that this this call to holiness comes after all these verses of explaining our redemption in Christ. And he does this because he wants to communicate that we do not gain our salvation by our good works, but our good works flow out of our salvation. Obedience, according to Peter, according to to all of the Bible, obedience does not make us God's children, but it distinguishes us from all those that are not his children. And so Peter points to this distinguishing nature of holiness by saying, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. When we have come to know the grace of Christ, when we understand this grace, when we set our mind fully on it, we ought to look, feel, and act differently. And Peter here is not calling us to a sense of mere moralism or external obedience, absence of the love in our heart, but we daily ought to seek to put to death the old man, and make alive the new. He says explicitly that we are to put to death in us the passions 
of our former ignorance. And if we notice, it, it might be a little striking that there is not a long list of moral duties that, that Peter gives us, right? He, does, he doesn't say explicitly, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't play, don't play cards, don't watch rated R movies. He doesn't give us the, this list, but rather he, he tells us, um, he tells us to, to be holy for God is holy. And he tells us to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And so to be holy then means that Christians must conform their passions, their thinking, and all of their behavior to God's character and not their former ignorance. And Peter's telling us that we ought not to live as people with no hope. We ought not to live as people with no knowledge of the things to come, but we should live holy lives in light of the good news that Christ has come and in light of the news that Christ is still to come yet again. And so God is, is concerned with our holiness, with our, with our conduct and our life, but again, not as a means to our salvation, but as an expression of our salvation. Peter tells us we ought to be holy in all of our conduct. And the Greek word for all, it really means all, right? He, he does not say be holy only on Sundays. We're not to be holy only when our parents are watching, but in all of our conduct. When we are tempted to cheat on our math homework or on our taxes, God calls us to be holy. When we are tempted to do what every kid on the playground does, what every student in our dorm room does, whatever any of our coworkers does, God calls us to be holy in all of our conduct. And the reason for this, God calls us to be holy because He is holy. And here in, in this verse, Peter is quoting Leviticus 19, where before God gives Israel a long list of commands that they need to obey, he says, first, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It is the holiness of God and our love for God that ought to motivate our holiness. Boys and girls, we do not obey our, our, our parents only when we think that they're right, only when it's something we want to do, but we obey our parents because our holy God has placed them in our lives to care for us. And he has called you to be holy in your obedience and not to obey half-heartedly like other kids do. We as adults do not pay our taxes because we think our money is going to be well used. Certainly not the case, right? But we pay our taxes because our God calls us to be obedient to the authority he has placed over us. And husbands, we do not love our wives merely for what is in it for us, but because God has instituted marriage and called us to be holy in it. And so as Christians, we don't look at our parents or our children, our work, our relationships, according to our former ignorance that Peter is pointing to. We don't look at it in the same, same way some of our friends or family do, but we obey God and seek to be holy in all of our conduct. So when we consider all that we have in Christ Jesus, we should consider it unpardonable that we would become not blockheads, but unholy in our thoughts and our, and our deeds. We should consider it unpardonable that we would be an unholy people considering all the grace that our Lord Jesus has given us. Again, you can never be too clear on this topic that we cannot achieve 
holiness by our moral efforts or our good works alone. But Peter here calls us to be separate from our former ignorance. Our, our conduct ought to be different than the way it used to be. Our conduct ought to be different than the ways of the world. So holiness mean, means living a life worthy of God by the power of God. So again, I want, to, I want to point us to the fact that Peter does not give us a long list of external commands to obey. He doesn't boil down holiness and, and say simply, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't play cards. Although to be fair, God may call some of us to abstain from certain behaviors, and certainly he calls all of us to abstain from some behaviors. But what's important to note is that we cannot make ourselves holy by our own merit. It's not just a few acts that we need to obey. It is God that accomplishes that. And we are called now to conform our behaviors to God's standards and no longer the ways of our former ignorance. One of the greatest traps of of the devil that that we can all fall into is, is seeking holiness, not by God's standard, but according to our former ignorance. I've said it before, I've said it a dozen times, I'll say it a thousand times. We, we don't gain our salvation by our merit or by our holy, our holy acts. And many have fallen into the deception that God calls us to first clean ourselves up, to act holy, and then come to Him. But we must remember, though, the difference between an indicative and an imperative. God does not, does, does not say, be holy, and then you'll be saved. He says, I have saved you, now be holy as I am holy. And again, this is not mere semantics. This is not wordplay. This isn't isn't scrabble, right? The consequences of mixing these things up are, are life and death. And so some have considered the call to be holy as a means to salvation, as a way to gain salvation. Some have said, you know, if... If, what, if I give enough money, if, if I pray before my, my meetings, if I just don't do certain things, then God will, will save me. But Peter tells us, and God tells us, that we are chosen before the foundations of the world. That's where our salvation starts. He tells us that we have been born again, not through our holy acts, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he calls us all to know him and to trust him based on this great inheritance that we have, to now live holy lives. Not first live holy lives and then receive the reward, but knowing this great Savior and this great reward to live a holy life. He asks all of us not to trust in our own good works, not to trust in our own holiness, but to look to that that great Savior, Jesus Christ. He calls us all to come to him and to trust him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the good news of the gospel, the good news that the prophets search for, that even angels long to look into, that is now ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you, O God, that our salvation depends not upon us, but upon you. We thank you, O Lord, for the truth of, of your gospel, and we know, O Lord, that salvation comes from, from you alone, from the power of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so help us, 
this day and this week to be holy people, not out of a sense of, of earning thing, of earning anything, but because we love our holy God, because we love this great gospel. Help us, O Lord, not only to obey you externally, but to love your word, to love your commands. Help us, O Lord, in these things. We do love you, and we thank you, and we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.